Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Welcome once again to another episode of our Intellectual Capital podcast series. I'm Larry Wiesnick, Head of Investment Banking at TD Securities. And once again, I'm joined by my good friend and former colleague, David Erickson, Senior Fellow at the Wharton School. With that, let me turn it over to David to get things rolling. Thanks, Larry. So while 2023 was a great year for the equity markets, it has been really a lackluster for deals, especially IPOs and M&A. So as we start, you know, we're in late January now, what's your outlook for the next, you know, the balance of this year and maybe even a little bit longer? Well, David, I'll start with saying I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that uh, we think 24 will be markedly better than last year. But as you, since you indicated, it was pretty lackluster last year. That's not saying all that much. But well, what I'll 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 say is I think it'll actually be a pretty good year, not just better. Um, I think it'll be a pretty good year, and that's for a whole host of reasons. But if we start with the M&A market, uh, what I'd say is you know we're at a point now roughly 24 months since the overall market started to trade off to you know two years ago based on first fears and then the reality of interest rate cuts and what was going to be needed to to fight inflation and get get the economy let's just call it balanced um th- those that move uh, the first the fear and then the reality of significant rate cuts took away risk taking across the board uh, it affected the broad equity markets it obviously then affected new issue markets, IPOs, and then M&A. And, and the reality is buyers and sellers have to be able to agree on value. And it was most acutely felt in uh, M&A and in, in IPOs, the two areas where uh, there's the least price discovery and there's the most risk-taking involved. And so uh, it was a very challenging year last year after a, a down year in 22. And yes, we think 24 will be a better year. So with the IPO market showing a few signs of life back in the fall, unfortunately, a few of those deals just didn't have traded well. You talked about uh, there's got to be better price discovery between buyers and sellers to kind of move this, the IPO market from more sporadic to a more normalized market. What are other things that you think need to be in place to, to make the, a more consistent IPO market? Well, unfortunately, I was saying unfortunately because it, it's got how you and I have known each other a long time. And say, unfortunately, we've had this conversation many a time over the last twenty plus years or more. But you know, the IPO market is really not a, a market. I, 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 people like to talk about it as if it's its own market, but it, it really is a derivative of the broader equity capital markets. And as I said a, a moment ago, it's arguably the most fickle and the one with most risk because. I don't have an ability to see where bids and asks have been over the last day, five days, month, year, et cetera. We have to actually move forward and find a way for buyers and sellers to come together. And because of that, when you ask the question, what will it take to see more depth in that market? I think the first thing is we need to see the equity market strength that really came along in the second half of last year and was most pronounced still among a handful of names. So I think as everyone listening would know, uh, there was a real dichotomy between what the highest valued or we'll say best performing stocks in the S&P or the NASDAQ posted uh, last year from the rest of the market. 
So as that broadens out, uh, that leads to more new issues in terms of secondary offerings and follow-on offerings. As that takes hold, the next place where you see deals come to market is in the IPO market. And so I think as we see more stability, David, in uh, the the market overall, uh, I do anticipate this first quarter, you'll see an uptick in secondary offerings. We certainly saw December was pretty good. Uh, we now get into January and the problem is numbers start going stale. So people can't come to market. And then what we'll start seeing is kind of mid-Feb on, I think if the market continues the way um, it has been so far this year, we should see a decent amount of uh, follow-on offerings. And then we'll start seeing uh, in, in you know, the latter part of the quarter, IPO is picking up. And if there's success, and here's the important issue, if the first deals that come uh, have success and investors make money and uh, companies have a good shareholder base, then it will encourage others to come forward. So our view is the first half we see an uptick. And then as we move into the middle of the year, that, that will continue with additional volume. The one big question mark is we're in an election year. Right. So if we were talking about any market other than IPOs, I would say it's going to be front loaded. I think secondary offerings, we should see more in the front end of the year than the second part of the year. Certainly in investment grade debt, we're seeing in high yield. Uh, you know, It has been a pretty busy beginning to the year as issuers uh, who know what they have to do in terms of financing are trying to get ahead of the, the volatility that always comes up in a presidential election year. And this year, more than ever, I think volatility is a word to describe what we think is going to happen around the presidential. So um, certainly all those constant people would love to come uh, first half into, say, July and avoid, you know, avoid October, November. Yeah, it seems like a, a strange year, especially, as you said, with the election year and especially on the back of, I guess, results from New Hampshire earlier this week. It just seemed like there's not really going to be even primaries this year. And so it's going to be all about the general election starting starting now, almost. But. Yeah, well, it, 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 if you could ever say that, um, uh, you know, presidential elections are boring, we might be bored for a while here uh, going until till the real sizzle of the conventions. It's it is a long time. We actually had our our team from Washington Research Group recently talk about this. And if if in fact the Republican side is wrapped up over the next week or so, which again, if it's not the next week, maybe it's the next month, we'll see. If that's the case, this is really early when the convention is as far away as we're talking about. It's August for the for the Democrats and July for the Republicans. So we'll see. Um, you know, we're not in the the business of crystal balling politics, but uh, it, it's just a wild card that everyone needs to be thinking about from the market standpoint, that once the convention comes for sure, that period, um, the markets could be wide open. They could also be extremely volatile and therefore very difficult to get new issue done regardless of market. So we'll just have to see. So let, let's flip to the M&A market. Earlier this year, uh, we started with some a few strategic deals announced uh, in biopharma and healthcare. But the rest of the M&A market remains pretty quiet across sectors. What sectors are you seeing the most dialogue in or conversations in? And what are the types of catalysts you're expecting to kind of drive activity as we see the balance? In the I think it's a really interesting dynamic when we talk about the M&A environment. Last year, let's just say the last 18 months, so last year in the second half of 22, was challenged because not only did we see a downturn in large cap M&A, uh, which broadly is tied to where valuations and as valuations came down and interest rate risk, uh, you know, moved forward, we saw companies be much more cautious. 
But we also saw in, in the vast middle market, which is you know every year becoming a bigger and bigger part of the overall M&A market, we saw a real chilling effect, driven mostly by the fact that financing was becoming much more expensive. And because uh, in late 22, we saw a number of large syndicated loans that were you know not fully distributed and hence sitting on banks' balance sheets. And you know that, that also meant that the syndicated loan market was stuck. And so if the financing market is challenged, that has a huge impact on the ability for, you know, we'll call it the sponsor, in particular sponsor-related M&A deals to get done. But much of that has thought. So uh, the vast majority of uh, what was, a, you know, a, say a year ago, um, not distributed, has been distributed. Banks have been able to get their their their, their books into order. I think the, the private credit market continues to grow in importance. And so we have a market that, again, as long as you're comfortable with where interest rates are, and I would say, you know, 18 months into what has been a the tightening cycle, which now seems to be uh, now you know neutralizing, the market's pretty open for financing. It, it's not as aggressive as it would have been, say, two years ago. But deals can get financed. It now comes down to whether buyers and sellers can agree on value, and I think that's the most important thing. We do believe the M&A market is is thawing, if not um, significantly improving, but it's mostly because the proverbial rearview mirror. It no longer incorporates some of the very high multiples that in really every sector w- were there 24 months ago. So if you're in a cash flowing business that is easy to borrow against, you know, you're looking at m- almost every sector. I'd say almost because there are a handful where valuations are actually you know, higher, but in almost everything, because obviously discount rates reflect interest rates as part of that, multiples are down. And so management teams and owners that are comfortable that you know what? We're not getting back to 2021, 22 type multiples. They're willing to consider selling now. And then on the buy side, it's a, it certainly looks like far better multiples to buy at than it did two years ago. But the question is, you have to be comfortable that they're not going down lower. And I think we're at the point now where most people feel uh, that, uh, you know, in, again, other than the highest valued sectors, we're at a point where, you know, buyers and sellers can meet. So, that kind of change in in animal spirits, if you will, has really only kicked in the last few months. So we're definitely seeing backlogs grow. We're seeing more um, owners of assets thinking about selling. And one of the things that you just can't ignore is at the end of the day, you know, tigers do what tigers do and dogs do what dogs do. And when you think about the role of private investors um, in the private equity market, the, the majority of, of investors they can hold off for a year or two from putting new money to work. And on the other side, if something's matured in their, in, their, in their books, they can wait a year or two before they sell till they get to a point where they're comfortable. But at some point, the, the owners of these assets um, need to sell and the buyers need to start putting money to work. And so we do think that the, the, the waiting period is getting old for most of those investors. And so our first kind of priority is we think the private equity-related deals will pick up. Um, with public market deals probably being a, a bit lagging as it relates to percentage increases, but that will also kick in in the second half of the year into next year. So, so saying in another way, uh, you think most of the activity is going to be more sponsor-driven than strategic company-to-company? I, I think that the balance will be that we'll see private the private market leading the public market in terms of opportunity, with one exception, which is I think we'll continue to see um, you know, we've talked about this on this call, and we certainly talk about this with our clients, that the 
public companies coming out of this uh, challenging environment the last few years feel the pressure more than ever to justify the business they're in. You know, so the term that I like to use is fit and focus. I think fit and focus deals will continue. I think, you know, businesses that might maybe are in three or four sectors deciding that there's two that they're really good at, the other two they're not as good at, and they spin those other assets off, whether it be a public market transaction, whether it be selling to another strategic, or whether it's selling to private equity. So the, the world of take privates, the world of swapping assets, I think that's continuing to be, or will continue to be, a big part of the activity. What I don't think we're going to see an enormous number of is huge MOEs. I think that, you know, certainly with this Justice Department, um, but I don't think it's just uh, here in the U.S. I think globally, the the focus on monopoly power, the focus on uh, protecting consumers is such that uh, it is more and more difficult to do large MOEs and the majority will be much more, you know, add-ons and uh, tuck-ins. So you talked about private equity. Obviously, it's been very dormant in the private equity markets, whether it be monetizations on their behalf, just given there's no IPO market and there's been no IPO market and there's been very little in, in terms of M&A. And it's been very challenging because of that to raise capital or, or new money. But they, but the, according to Bain, they have something like over $3 trillion in dry powder sitting out there in terms of private equity funds to deploy uh, in terms of deals. How do you think that's going to loosen up? Is it putting more equity in like we've seen, or are we going to start to see a little bit more activity in terms of more leverage trends? I, I do think that we will get back to a time where leverage creeps up again. That's not where we are right now. I think that most situations we're seeing are you know have a significant equity check associated. There's a reluctance for a whole host of reasons, including you know oversight, et cetera, to put significant leverage on onto situations. And the other thing is just interest rates are higher. So the economics don't look the same, right? So when you look at the cash flows, et cetera, and how much uh, you know leverage someone could take on, it's different when you're looking at you know zero or one percent uh, rates versus a base rate of five percent or thereabouts. So so I do think you'll see more equity. But I think to your point, private equity firms are incented to put money to work. And so what I said earlier, you can wait a year and a half, two years, at some point you have to find a way to put that money to work. And the, and the same thing is true on the other side, which is that in the end, for the vast majority, not all, because there's some funds that are set up where they get incentives tied to NAV, et cetera, but most it's tied to monetizations. And so you can't wait forever to monetize. So I do think that those two sides of the equation, I got to put money to work and then I have to monetize the other side, is going to lead to an ultimate thawing in, in the private equity world. As you said, I think it'll be bigger equity checks as a percentage. But I also think that we're at a point where the winners are going to keep getting stronger and those that are average are going to suffer. You, you talked about the fundraising environment. There have been some very, very strong fundraising in the last 12, 18 months coming from those that have great track records and investors want to put more money there. On the flip side, those who've struggled or had average performance are finding not that they can't raise as much as they would have, they're finding that it may just be you know dry for them. And, and so they put off fundraising until they can have a better story. So so it is definitely becoming a market of haves and have-nots, and there are echoes in what we're seeing in private equity to what we saw probably 20 years ago in the public mutual fund world, which was it was getting harder and harder for folks in the middle to operate. Right? You either had to be truly a large player with scale, or you had to be very nimble with a very small focus and argue that you were the best at fill-in-the-blank subsector or subcategory. We're starting to see that now in the private equity and venture world where 
you know, either the two ways you become a have is you either are very, very good across significant number of areas or you're deep in your sub area focus. You do nothing but that expertise. So as with previous podcasts, we've occasionally touched on areas in the market that don't necessarily get a lot of attention. You know, the client should be aware of. As we start a new year uh, for 2024, what should clients be looking for having their eyes on? So I think there's there's two themes that we've maybe touched on, um, you know, here and there, but we haven't really talked about as we'll call it issues to focus on. And, and I think are worth now saying their time has come. I think the the first would be the reality of secondary uh, transactions and continuation funds. So the natural extension of your question before about private equity and not necessarily wanting to monetize in a challenging environment is you have a lot of assets being held in the private equity world where the sponsor that controls it really likes the asset, but their investors who've been in it for a while may not necessarily want to continue to have that investment. And so the market has continued to evolve in terms of ways that the the private equity fund can extend their time period that they are associated with the asset and change up their LP base. And so one way is by selling into a continuation fund, uh, whether it be a general continuation fund or maybe specific to that deal. And the other is um, providing liquidity options to the uh, investors through secondary uh, trades. And I think that that's you know, something which is here to stay. Uh, in the last year, the SEC started focusing on it in terms of trying to understand it better. I think anytime you see the SEC start to look at an opportunity or an issue in the private market, it means that it's happening with some um, significance in terms of the uh, number of trades. So I think that's something that, again, clearly people need to be cognizant of. But importantly, I think it's a positive development. As long as they're done the right way with the right governance, look, it's hard to find a great asset. And if a private equity fund has spent the time, uh, added value. They know the asset well. They know the management team well. Uh, the idea that they they must sell the position in order to get uh, the monetization that is tied into their alignment of interest with that company. I think if if they think they can add value and 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 invest in it for another five years, having more ways to do that is is valuable. And that's that's what we're seeing with uh, those those elements. The other other theme that I think is is with us and, and is not going away is the role of very flexible private capital. And you know, private capital from the credit side comes in a lot of different forms, whether it be direct lenders, which allows the middle market to operate very efficiently in terms of the sponsor space, whether it be accessing credit, which might have slightly different terms than banks would lend at, but provides for issuers or borrowers the opportunity to really trade off well, I could go to the bank market, I get certain terms there, some are better for me, some might be slightly worse, or I can go down the private market, and again, I have different trade-offs, but it, it is now allowing the loan market to look and feel a bit more like the equity market, where I have different options in both the private and the public path, and we think that's healthy. We think in the end, the, the more options that companies have for how to fund themselves and who to partner with, then the better uh, they are going to be in terms of fulfilling their mission of creating value for their shareholders. So we're we're very supportive of both markets. We certainly participate in both markets and look forward to seeing how that plays out 24, where I think it will continue to be a banner year for the uh, the growth of private credit markets. 
Great. Well, thank you, Larry, for it's been great to start the year. Hopefully, and knock on wood, we'll have uh, more to talk about when we touch base again in another couple of months. But uh, look forward to talking further. Well, and David, always a pleasure uh, talking with you. Look forward to our next uh, conversation. And for the listeners, thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.